Welcome back to another episode of My 600 Pound Life. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Time for a uh, a nice, fun-filled day of knowledge and entertainment. <laughs> yeah, let's see how that goes. But regardless, thank you for joining in. I do appreciate it, as always. Um, if you haven't, check out the old merch store that I set up. Uh, I got some t-shirts uh mugs wallets i think magnets you know little knickknacks stickers posters all that shit mostly the t-shirts um just check out the instagram at the cody tucker got a little link there for the account um click on that little link buy a damn t-shirt so i don't have to you know sell my car so i can keep buying cigarettes so uh with that said let's go ahead and kick things off go right at it First, first item in the old docket. Um, <laughs> so Kevin Cosner just got divorced from uh, his wife, Christine Cosner. The settlement for the divorce was $129,000 a month, a month. She, Christine Cosner, AKA that old trifling bitch says that that ain't going to cut it. It needs to be closer to about $180,000 a month. <laughs> she, Her quote is that our kids' lifestyle costs more. Now, I don't know how, you know, we all probably grew up a little differently, which is fine. Um, I don't know anyone who, as a kid, grew up in a lifestyle where six figures was being spent on you every single month. <laughs> like in the, so if you read into it more, she goes into more detail about um, like what, like why she's requesting another basically $60,000 a month. And it's because she thinks that it will not be fair that her kids get to have a much better lifestyle when they're with their dad, AKA, one of the biggest actors of all time, Kevin Cosner, then when they're with just this random woman that he happened to knock up. Um, for her to think she is entitled to any of this is insane to me. Unless she was like the greatest acting coach on the planet and is the only reason that he was getting roles, then yeah, she doesn't deserve any of this. All this money is because Kevin Cosner is good at playing pretend in front of a camera, just like how I pretend that I know what the hell I'm talking about at all. When in reality, I don't now. I don't know. Like, like what could she, what could they possibly like? So she was saying how like the vacations are going to be way nicer when they're with Kevin Cosner than when they're with her. 
So she needs $180,000 to give like the vacations that he can give. Now, unless, unless she's planning on taking these kids bald eagle hunting, I don't think she needs $180,000. <laughs> like unless she's taking her kids to the damn Louvre and saying, Oh, you can, you know, each of you can pick one thing <laughs> and, and, and we'll get out of here. And, you know, now granted when I was a kid, we, our version was to walk into a gas station and you could pick one candy, which always went with Hershey's cookies and cream, which probably explains why I am mildly autistic slash maybe borderline psychopathic. Um, <laughs> now I just, I, the, it's just insane to me. It never makes sense how, and you know, we hear these stories all the time of like celebrities who I'm not just, I mean, celebrity, I mean, rich people like what Jeff Bezos, wife became like one of the richest people in the world off of, off of a divorce settlement. Like that is just mind boggling to me. That, I mean, like I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure Kevin Costner has enough money to uh, take care of this problem. <laughs> so I feel like there's a good chance that this woman will be found. Uh, she's going to turn up missing probably pretty soon. <laughs> Might get one of his Yellowstone buddies to, uh, you know dig you know dig a hole somewhere out in the woods and old christine knee cosner will be uh <laughs> long gone i mean it is boy is that wild like like i can under like the amount of just bullshit that like a person goes through who isn't rich and famous like during a divorce i can't imagine what it would be like to be you know kevin cosner who She's saying in this thing that he's worth $400 million, which is, that's mind boggling to me. Like when I read that, I I was utterly flabbergasted to find out that Kevin Costner was worth $400 million. I'm not saying it is not deserved. Like JFK, me being a massive conspiracy nut and basically a cocaine addict who has never used cocaine. um, (laughs) JFK is like one of my favorite movies. So I'm on team team Kev a hundred percent of the way. And I mean, I don't know anything about this woman other than she, you know, shit out a couple of his kids. And apparently that means she should get $180,000 a month. Like, what is that a year? I mean, that's over. I mean, if it was, if it, what is that? I mean, that's like two mil, two million. Am I right on that? I think that's like $2 million almost a year for for nothing, for doing absolutely nothing. She did nothing to benefit his career in any way. Actually, maybe even made it worse because they're divorced. So clearly she wasn't providing like a healthy home life. Now, I mean, that's probably unfair of me to say because he could have been you know, maybe Kevin Costner is a monster. I don't know. I, I don't in my heart of hearts. I believe Kevin Costner is probably a pretty good dude. So who knows, man, who knows? Um, but irregardless, 
Actually, regardless. I don't think irregardless is a word. Um, let's move on. Topic number T. Oh, fuck. Um, so R. Kelly's music royalties at UMG must go to sex abuse victims, Judge says. Uh, the ruling covers most of Kelly's money held by Universal, um, but leaves unresolved questions about Kelly's funds held by Sony, his former label. So blah, blah, blah. Basically, yeah. So R. Kelly <laughs> music royalties are going to the sex abuse victims. Now, granted, that's great. That That's very good that they're doing that because... Getting abused by that psychopath has to be, oh, man, that that's not good. Now, grand, I mean, whatever you may think about R. Kelly or like the documentary, the like Surviving R. Kelly documentary, I can't speak for any of these women who had to deal with this shit. What I can say is that if I was one of them and a ruling got passed saying that his music royalties would be going to me, Boy, I would be in a tricky spot. Because on the one hand, this motherfucker abused me. On the uh, on the uh, remaining hand, the more I promote his music, <laughs> the more his music sells, the more money I get. <laughs> so you are in a very precarious situation of being kind of have like, like you could really make some money by like, promoting r kelly's music after he's the person who sexually abused you (laughs) oh man i think i would i'd be wearing r kelly t-shirts everywhere i went i'd be asking like relatives hey have you uh when's the last time you listened to r kelly like isn't that the fucker that was you know diddling you yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. enough of that but man you need to go back and listen to You know, this album, boy, man, we forget how good it is. I'd be, I would be plugging his music everywhere I went. Now, granted, I am basically a whore when it comes to anything, money or fame, which is odd because I have neither of both. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm a very unsuccessful whore, which I guess it runs in the family. Hey, (laughs) oh, all right. Um, next, oh man. All right. Fucking pencils down, uh, nod your heads. This is not nod your heads, bow your heads. A sad day, very sad day in our world. Bob Barker, longtime host of the price is right dies at 99, man. Now look, I don't know for sure. If this is real, but I'm pretty sure Bob Barker was banging every one of the women on that show. (laughs) So for him, I mean, for him to have not caught just an incurable amount of the clap. I mean, think of like hosting like the what people had back in the 70s. Now, granted, I know like AIDS came along and boy, that's not a good one to get. But, you know. I, f- I feel like just from my readings of life in the 70s and 80s, the clap was a pretty common thing. <laughs> and it, from what I've read about it, luckily, fingers crossed, have never had it. But boy, does it sound miserable. Now, I know I'm turning Bob Barker's eulogy into... <laughs> for some reason, I've turned Bob Barker's eulogy into a discussion about gonorrhea. Uh, 
but I think it is warranted because there is a good chance that Bob Barker probably had terminal gonorrhea <laughs> that finally caught up to him at the age of 99. And hey, God, it's got to suck to make it to 99 and not 100. Like, you're right there. Like, and what's crazy is that, like, because how I immediately looked at it when I found out. So when I found out he died, obviously I was very upset. Bob Barker, childhood, like, a focal point of my childhood staying like is, you know, being sick and staying home to watch prices, right? Not to watch prices, right? I would just stay home and prices, right? Is on, um, which I think is a universal thing. Like I'm in no way alone in that sentiment, but the, I mean, so hearing that, that he's dead, I'm like, God damn it, man. Um, kind of didn't realize he was alive. <laughs> I'll admit, but you know, upset nonetheless, but then see that he's, he was 99. I'm like, man, to make it that close without getting to a hundred has got to be like, so my first reaction was like, what a failure <laughs> to get that close to a hundred. You can't hold off for like another couple of months or however long it was going to be before he turned a hundred. Like, come on, dude. It's like, it's the same way people look at like the Buffalo Bills. People think of the Bills as being like one of the shittiest franchises ever, but they went to four Super Bowls in a row. But because they lost those four Super Bowls, because they made it all the way and couldn't get that last game, couldn't get that last win, people look at the Bills as being just this like massive disappointment. It's like, they were the second best team in the NFL four years in a row. That's what dying at 99 is like. Like, you lived 99 years. That is a long time. But it isn't a century. <laughs> so, in some regards, it is a massive letdown. It's like like people who go who like play in a Super Bowl but lose. Some of the mindset of that of the people who make it and lose is that like, I would rather have not even gone at all because of just how fucking heartbreaking it is to make it to a Super Bowl and not win, but make it all that way, all that work to lose and see like the happiness on the other team and like how it's like this like life changing moment and I don't get to have it. And I was this close from having it like that's that's dying at 99. <laughs> like it's an achievement by all sorts of imagination, but you might as well have died at 60 or 85. Like, I mean, from 85 to 99, that's, let's say 84 to 99, that's 15 years. What was your last 15, what was Bob Barker's last 15 years like? It couldn't have been anything special. But you feel like you have to be at some point, like once you hit 90 for sure, you have to be hitting some point where you're like, Okay, I got to hold out to 100. Like, I've made it this far. I got to get to 100. And for him to die, you know, just a few months short of that, man, that's got to just be heartbreaking for the old man. But, I mean, he doesn't know. <laughs> he doesn't even know he's dead. He probably didn't know he was alive for the last couple of years, too. So, there's that. <coughs> Jeez. Fucking Christ. Okay. All right, let's see. Next thing. Holy fuck. More news with this fucking psycho. 
So, um, I mean, I haven't cared anything about this really. I just find it very funny. Like in the headlines are funny to me. So that's really the only reason this is going to get talked about. Um, so Britney Spears adds new hires to her home staff, including a medical professional that will be responsible for ensuring she takes her meds amid ongoing divorce from Sam Asgari. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Okay, this whole that whole save Britney, free Britney uh, bullshit. There you go. <laughs> There's your result. You have a woman who now has to have a has to hire someone to make sure she takes her goddamn psych meds. That that's not good. Like some people should not be left to their own devices because when they are, boy, does it go bad. And. Maybe a conservatorship is not the worst thing for that person to go to have. Um, I mean, I think I think what everybody thought was that she was some sort of goddamn like princess locked in a castle kind of thing, like um, you know Shrek, and that she just needed a, an ogre to save her from dragon guarded, uh, guarded castle. In reality, she's the dragon. <laughs> like she is in no way uh, suited for taking care of herself at all. And it took about uh, fifteen minutes for us to find that out. <laughs> I mean, my God! Like, I mean, for one, she's getting blackmailed by this dude, which is hilarious in its own right. And all these people that are pro Britney Spears, it's your fault. It, you were the ones to blame. I I have been pro conservatorship since day one. I will stand by that. Um, in general, in most cases, I'm pro conservatorship. If you were at a point where even where that even becomes like a possibility, things have probably gone very wrong. Now, whether or not it's her fault or not that she's in that situation to begin with that's debatable <laughs> i mean i think if you look back um i think things were not looking good from a pretty early age from based on like what people were doing to her uh, so yeah but also you can't go back in time she needs to be locked up and just fed you know What's the one that they give people that like the zombie med um, Thor Thorazine? She needs to be locked up and fed Thorazine, you know, three meals a day. <laughs> a Thorazine sandwich, three meals a day, and delete her Instagram and TikTok and shit. Because, boy, is that a train wreck. I mean, the deadness in her eyes. Like, she... Oh, man... It is wild. I mean, for one, I, I mean, I don't give two shits about Britney Spears. It's without a doubt, probably the one of the most, one of the least talented human beings to ever make it, to ever become successful. Um, probably put her right up there with uh, Drake. Um, and I don't know the Eagles. <laughs> it's quite a quite a threesome, but um, yeah just bizarre so bizarre like how does this even 
Like you have, ugh, I don't know. Anyways, moving on. All right, boy. Netflix is shutting down its DVD rental service at the end of September. One, stop there. That is mind-blowing to me. That they were, there's, I had no clue that Netflix was still doing DVD rentals. <laughs> I thought that was long gone. So, so if I went on Netflix, I could have still been ordering DVDs. Not that I ever would, because I'm not a, I mean, I'm not a uh, total fucking poor, but Jesus. So Netflix shutting down its DVD rental service in September. The company said customers could keep their final batch of discs at no additional cost and could also request up to 10 more movies by mail in an everything must go deal. I, you know, not to always be like a negative Nancy, but this sounds like a setup if I've ever heard one. <laughs> there, I feel like there's a very likely chance that you do this and get a bill in the mail for 150 bucks saying you stole DVDs from us. But also, man, this has been, this was like a fantasy of mine as a child was that I could just, it means all I ever wanted was DVD, CDs and DVDs. Like birthday, Christmas, whatever. All I did was just make a list of movies and CDs that I wanted. And it's insane to think of like those being now a complete waste. <laughs> like I, I had, there's zero reason that a human being sh should own a CD or a DVD in today's, uh, today's America. I mean, I, and I had so many, so many DVD CDs, like books filled with them that I would like alphabetize. Like, I, cause again, autism, um, we could lay out alphabetize and do that all the time. And then like, they would eventually get fucked up, do it again. And it would be like a fun task to alphabetize my DVDs and CDs. And yeah, I like, I miss that so much, but I do remember like, like I was given a box of DVDs from like a family member, like a long, 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 long time ago, or like a little kid. And it was the greatest day of my life. Like I was just given a box filled with DVDs and getting to like, look through them as he was in there. Like, like I miss that so much even though it's obviously so much better to be able to just stream anything you want legally or illegally. Um, but there is something like that. I do miss about like having the physical thing and like having to go get it, find it, save up to buy it. Um, or, you know, get it for like Christmas birthday or whatever, like that reward of having it. Whereas now, I mean, there's no fucking reward. If I want to watch a movie, I can just go, Look it up, find whatever it's streaming on, watch it right then. There's like no, there's no chase to it, which I am rambling on about the joys of a DVD, which is really making me uh, question. I'm a, I, I don't have a whole lot going on. <laughs> if that isn't abundantly clear by now, um, most of my days are spent reminiscing about owning goddamn DVDs. That can't be good. I mean, again, I am no doctor. I just play one on TV. 
but that can't that can't be healthy for anyone then again clearly not a very healthy person so let's just leave things as they are right now move on to uh the next uh you know segment um i'm going to introduce a new segment again whether this one will stick or not <laughs> uh that remains to be seen i think it will because one of my favorite things to talk about besides like you know crazy shit that happened in history or like stuff like that which i'm gonna keep doing that always i think that's so much fun to me um but i also am a bit of a cinephile very much a movie lover as i guess just discussed when talking about my weirdly nearly erotic uh obsession over dvds um but i also have noticed in my life that i my taste in movies is very i mean i guess unorthodox somewhat would i mean sort of would be the word movies that most people like there's no rhyme or reason for my like the for the movies that i like there's no like pattern really that it fits in i mean i have like certain genres that i like thrill suspense thrillers horror stuff like that but there are movies that like i consider myself to be a person almost a movie snob in some ways not like you know not like the woody allen fucking jerkers that you know not like that but like i don't pretend to like movies that i think suck I hate Avatar. I think Avatar is one of the worst movies ever made. I understand that, you know, it's made so much money and people love it. I think it is a giant piece of shit. But I also love uh, Anaconda, <laughs> which is a legitimate, horrible movie. But I, and I don't know how to explain it. I don't know why I like and, but then I also like, you know, classics that are, you know, universally considered, recognized as being amazing movies like, um, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, The Godfather, um, East of Eden, you know, movies like that. So who knows? But what I have wanted to do for a long time on, you know, on the old show is um, kind of go through movies that have horrible ratings, horrible, horrible reviews, made probably very little money, but I love and kind of state my case of why this movie shouldn't be hated as much as it's hated. So as negative as I tend to be, this is going to be me finally, you know, breaking out of my pessimism cocoon and turning into an optimistic little butterfly. With that being said, um, here's a segment tentatively called uh, movies that don't suck as bad as you think they suck alright so to usher in the new segment movies that don't suck as much as you think they suck I'm, I'm going full force into a movie that let me see what the IMDB has as a 5.3 so not very good. But this is a movie that since I'm since I'm a little kid, I have I've seen this movie at least a hundred times. I might call this segment the Hundred Times Club. Cause there are like there's a list of movies that I've seen over a hundred times, like 
very known that I've seen, you know, like I know for a fact I've seen that many times. And I might go through, I don't know. Again, tentative, don't know. I don't know what's going on uh, in general. But the movie that I'm going to talk about first, for the first time in the segment, is the 2000 classic starring David Arquette, Scott Kahn, Oliver Platt, and Rose McGowan, Ready to Rumble. <laughs> well, if you haven't seen Ready to Rumble, well, you probably are not alone. For me, like Ready to Rumble. Okay, so plot summary of Ready to Rumble. Let me just read it. Two slacker wrestling fans are devastated by the ousting of their favorite character by an unscrupulous promoter. That's a fair assessment. The meta score, like the, uh, you know, film critics overall score, 23 out of 100. <laughs> so I, it's, that's not good. And the movie is, but the movie is not that bad. It has a great, ca- I mean, a, for the year 2000, a stacked cast. I mean, David Arquette was massive at this time, like coming off of Scream, um, Scott Kahn, son of Jimmy Kahn, a.k.a. Uh, Sonny Corleone, um, Rose McGowan before she completely lost her mind, Oliver Platt, who is one of, like I think, the most underrated actors ever, Lake Placid, will probably be making an appearance in this segment at some point, but I, he's amazing in, all, in that. It has um, Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, as they say, uh, Martin Landau. Who else is in this movie? Frank Zappa's son. I mean, uh, granted, I just, I mean, kind of fell off a little bit on that one, but Ahmet Zappa. Um, and not to mention, the the highlight of the movie is that the movie takes place in the midst of the WCW World Championship Wrestling world of Monday Night Nitro. Now, if you were like me and grew up in a trailer, decently white trash, you at a time where like you are very little when WCW is around. I mean, granted, I've watched WCW and WWF religiously as a kid. Monday Night Nitro and Monday Night Raw were like, that is what I flipped back and forth between. And depending on who was wrestling, on on what show, at what time, I'm bouncing back and forth between the two. Now, I have gone back and watched WCW Monday Night Nitro, and boy, is it completely different than I remember it being. I mean, they are basically wrestling in like a junior high gymnasium. <laughs> and I mean, it looks, man, it does not look good. But regardless, this movie has like my favorite wrestlers from my childhood in the movie. Diamond Dallas played just the heel of the film. Um, Goldberg is in it. Sting, Booker T., Bam Bam Bigelow, Psycho Sid, or Sid Vicious, I guess. Um, who else? That's that's like the only ones I can remember offhand. But I mean, Domondellis Page, that's the that is the guy. Like I was such a big fan of Domondellis Page as a kid, and Sting. Sting was like 
right up there for me for like you know my guys um now granted when you if you watch ready to rumble <laughs> you have got to remember that this movie is 23 years old and in a lot of ways <laughs> like a lot of comedies from the early 2000s has not aged well at all but is insanely fun this movie is hilarious like er, this it is a very very well written funny movie with like super good lines like you know ready to i cannot stress enough how good ready to rumble is like looking through the images of it right now as i am like i mean i haven't seen this in a while but like i remember thinking like rose like I mean, obviously, like Rose McGowan was top notch back then, but like the character of Jimmy Jimmy King, who was played by Hollywood, like, I will rule you, was like I was so like hated the fact that he wasn't an actual wrestler. I don't know. Look, I mean, maybe I'm an idiot for liking this kind of shit. I don't know. There are definitely times where I've questioned my love for professional wrestling. Um, but then, it, but my answer to self is always, fuck everybody else. I like wrestling. I don't necessarily care for it anymore, but I will go back and watch late 90s, early 2000s wrestling matches any day of the week and enjoy every second of it. Ready to Rumble is like, tapping into that shit for you know an hour and how long is this movie hour and 47 minutes to, i mean it is an hour and 47 minutes of like reliving your childhood if you were a kid like me spending a lot of alone time watching dudes wrestle each other <laughs> um yeah so if you haven't seen ready to rumble go check it out it's an incredible movie uh you know, you're missing out. All right. So now we're going to go ahead and do a little bit of um, where that come from. Got a pretty, I think, pretty interesting one. I happen to be a very big fan of like Greek mythology, ancient Greece. Um, have always been just like utterly fascinated by it. There is a very long list of phrases and like terminology that we use that comes from ancient Greece tons of stuff like greek ancient greek gods that like their names are now the words we use for like basically the powers they had like hypnos like hypnotize comes from hypnos um echo is a was a greek god that you know of like reverberating sound basically or had something to do with reverberating sound um like double speak so aka there we now we have echo there's a million of those that you can find um panic comes from pan um, again, all kinds of stuff. The one I'm going to talk about today is the story of Theseus. So Theseus was basically like the Greek John McClane. <laughs> and, and in like a weird way, like Theseus was just like a badass action hero. Um, he's the son of Aegeus, who was a king. So King Aegeus. King Aegeus was in war with the king of it's either Minos or Minos. I've heard both. Um, 
If you know for sure which one it is, leave a little comment. Tell me. I think it's Minos. I'm pretty sure Minos. I'm just going to go with Minos. So uh, King Aegeus getting absolutely destroyed by King Minos. Part of his victory, the punishment that comes from King Minos's victory over King Aegeus is he has this labyrinth built and puts this monster in there called the Minotaur. Minos Minotaur. Uh, Minotaur is half bull, half human. Um, and King Mina, the King of Minos demands that like basically sacrifices are sent to the labyrinth where the Minotaur is and the Minotaur kills these sacrifices in this giant maze, this giant labyrinth. The labyrinth itself was built by uh, Daedalus. That's how I think it's pronounced. Daedalus, who uh, was the father of Icarus, the one who made the wax wings for little Icarus. Icarus was flying. His dad, Daedalus, told him, hey, fly, but don't fly too close to the sun. He ends up flying really close to the sun, says, fuck you, I'll do what I want. Wax wings start melting. He plummets down and dies. So Icarus flying too close to the sun, all that shit. That's his dad, Daedalus, the one who built the labyrinth that houses the Minotaur, the monster of the king of Minos. Theseus, being an absolute badass, is like, actually, I'll make myself a sacrifice. I'll go to the labyrinth, and then you need to stop screwing with us. King, um, the king of Minos is like, that sounds fair. Like, I get to kill the prince. Sounds great. Theseus goes, and when he goes to the labyrinth, he decides to take, like, a big thing of, of like, yarn, like a big thing of string with him, and leave, like, a little path for him to figure out his way back out of the labyrinth. Um, a Hansel und Gretel trail of breadcrumbs, if you will. He goes in, finds the Minotaur, and fucking destroys that thing, kills the Minotaur, and is like, all right, now I got to get out of the labyrinth. Fucking already has the trail of uh, string leading him back out. He ends up coming back um, and makes his way out of the labyrinth, is able to go back to his home. Now, the interesting part of like this story and where it comes into like today's world is that obviously the story was like is from ancient Greece. It eventually gets translated into middle English. Which is, if you ever try to read something in middle English, it ain't English. <laughs> it may as well be its own language, but regardless in middle English, the word for a ball of string, a ball of yarn, ball of twine, whatever you want to say is clue c-l-e-w so that is where we get the word clue from c-l-u-e and that is still why we use the phrase unraveling a clue or following a clue the same way theseus unraveled string and was use, using it to follow to get his way out of the labyrinth um so that is why we use that phrase today. And then a little side note, 
just to kind of wrap up the story, on Theseus's return, he had told his father, King Aegeus, that I will return with in a ship if I'm alive in the return. So, like, the people are going to bring me back. If I'm alive, my flag is going to be a white flag. So you'll know, you'll be able to look out over the cliff, over the sea, and see the white flag and know, I'm alive. I was able to kill the Minotaur, find my way out. Everything's good. If the flags, if the sails are black, like a black flag at the top, then I died. Well, old Theseus forgot to change the flags to white. So when King Aegeus is looking out over the horizon, over the cliff, he sees a black flag and thinks, damn, my son's dead. So he, in a just rage of anger and sadness, dives headfirst off of the cliff into the ocean, dies. Then, from then on, that sea that King Aegeus nosedived off of, nosedove, nosedived, nosedove. I don't know which one. I think nosedived. The sea that King Aegeus nosedived into became known as the Aegean Sea. So, hopefully you found that interesting. I find it interesting. Then again, I am an odd some bitch. So, that's that. Let's move on to a little bit of half-assed history. Got three very interesting stories that hopefully you'll like. Um, without further ado. So, here we go. I got three, I believe, very fascinating stories that uh, hopefully you'll you know find enjoyable. Again, this is half-assed history, so whether or not all of this is 100% factual, eh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, doesn't really matter. It's a good story nonetheless. Um, so let's go ahead and kick things off with the first story. First story, we're going back in time to late 1800s, very early 1900s, and talking about a fella named Dr. Henry Cotton. Dr. Henry Cotton is without a doubt one of the most controversial psychiatrists ever. Way more controversial than Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, whoever. Dr. Henry Cotton was an absolute monster. Um, he believed, which in some ways, in some so what he believed actually kind of holds some weight to it. He just went about it in a not so great way. Dr. Henry Cotton believed that mental illnesses originate in infections. So an infectious disease actually is what leads to certain mental illnesses, schizophrenia, major depression, um, mania, whatever it may be, um, any like kind of manic episodes, things like that. It means you have an infection somewhere in your body. That's what Dr. Henry Cotton believed. And there are people still today who do believe that. Dr. Henry Cotton, this being in the late 1800s, early 1900s, dental care, not so great. So people got infections, like dental infections, like, you know, in the gums, oral infections all the time. So he naturally was like, that's where we need to look at first for these infections. And his way of making sure these infections went away so that your mental illness went away is he would just start ripping your teeth out of your head. <laughs> and 
keep keep pulling teeth until the infection went away. Most of these people end up having all their teeth pulled out because uh, he was wrong. This that is not these dental infections weren't causing you know depression and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but that's what he thought. He believed that these infections were causing. So he just started ripping teeth out of people's heads. Um, now, obviously, that nine times out of ten did nothing. So he would say, I'm sorry you don't have any teeth anymore. That's on me. But there's got to be an infection in you somewhere. Let's find it. So he would move on from teeth to, if you're a man, removing your testicles. A woman removing your ovaries. See if that works. It obviously wouldn't. So then he would move on to end up removing parts of your bladder, spleen, stomach, parts of your colon, and hopefully (laughs) something sticks. All in all, he claimed that he had an 85% success rate. That is Dr. Henry Cotton's. Uh, you know, estimate. There is no factual basis to support him having an 85% success rate. The actual numbers are so, so much lower than that. But because this, you know, well-known, I mean, Dr. Cotton is a decently well-known physician already. Um, so Dr. Henry Cotton going out and publicizing these results that are fake ends up getting people like getting him a lot of attention and having people begging to be treated by him. Now remember the treatment is having your teeth ripped out. Then your nuts ripped off. Then your stomach cut out. Like (laughs) people were begging like parents who had unruly children were begging to have Henry cotton do these procedures to their children. Um, I mean, a lot of the people treated by Dr. Henry cotton were minors. Um, now, obviously, even in 1900, so 1900, very long time ago, medical practices as far as like sanitation, you know, hygiene were um, not so great. Because of that, having a surgery was a super dangerous option. Like having having a hole cut into your body was, I mean, so risky back then. So people were a lot of people were naturally like terrified to have these operations and didn't want them done. But because a parent says, no, you're going to do this. This is what I want for my kid. Kid has no choice. So a lot of the people that Dr. Henry Cotton was performing these surgeries on were people who were literally strapped to a table so that they couldn't run away. (laughs) And he was doing this to like so many people. The actual statistics of Dr. Henry Cotton's procedures show that there was a 45% death rate. So basically for all intents and purposes, half the people he did his surgeries on died from it. Half. One out of two. Basically, 45%. 45% chance that if you went in to have a surgery from Dr. Henry Cotton, who was going to cure you of your mental disorders, you were going to die. 
which I guess in some ways, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you technically don't have schizophrenia anymore. You don't have a pulse either. Um, but he was, even with this, all, he was massively respected and loved throughout the country. People did not see him as being this monster crackpot quack until like in very recent years um all throughout like the early to mid 1900s i mean there were people there are people who still believe he was doing the right thing and that what he did was did actually work so in all he performed 600 major surgeries and in all this time pulled over 11,000 teeth <laughs> and also remember uh local anesthetics not so great in the late 1800s early 1900s so you're basically raw dogging having your entire uh you know teeth system pulled from your head who dr henry cotton what a piece of shit all right <laughs> moving on to the next one. Oh, this is a good one <laughs> all right so um if you're eating you might want to stop um so now we're going way 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 back in time to 1184 so a thousand years ago at this time this is like major major uh moment for the holy roman empire the holy roman empire is massive um you know Byzantium, Constantinople, all this stuff. It's basically like the entire ruling structure of Europe is the Holy Roman Empire. In 1184, King Henry VI of Germany is wanting to have a meeting amongst all the like, you know, ruling class people throughout the Holy Roman Empire. Once have this giant meeting uh, in a place called Erfurt, E-R-F-U-T, Erfurt. Um, that's like his estate is there, like his, you know, where, he, where King Henry VI resides, Erfurt. He invites all these people throughout the uh, Holy, throughout the empire to come to him to have this meeting. When they end this meeting, they are, again, in the home, they are on the second floor because there are so many people crowded into the second floor, including King Henry VI himself, the floor starts to buckle. Now, obviously, not the greatest uh, you know, construction work <laughs> going on in uh, 1184. Um, so it starts to buckle. And the second floor, second story, ends up collapsing. And everyone who's there falls through the second floor down into the first floor, the cellar. Basically like a Mick Foley, Mankind, Undertaker, uh, you know, cage match. Like just boom, 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 boom. Falls through second floor, down into first floor. First floor is the cellar. The cellar is where the latrine is. That's basically what comprises the, uh, like basically what makes up the first floor is this massive latrine. If you don't know what a latrine is, 
it is basically a literal shithole. <laughs> it is a, ma I mean, in this case, a massive pool of liquefied human feces. All of these people fall, you know, 20 feet down into a big, massive pool of liquid human fecal matter. In all, 60 people drowned in liquid shit. <laughs> um, and tons of others. Well, actually, the, out of the 60, um, 60 people died either by a combination of drowning in the liquid human feces or by suffocating from the shit fumes that were, you know, resonating <laughs> within this nightmare pool that they had fallen into. King Henry VI, he ends up surviving by sitting on this like stone floor, like rock that basically is big enough to hold him. So he's, he's basically kicking people down back into the, uh, the doo-doo and, you know, hoping for the best. He's the rose to all the other people's, uh, shit jacks. Uh, it ends up being called known as the airfoot latrine disaster, 60 people drowning in raw sewage. And these are also, it's 60, like of the highest level, like ruling class people of the Holy Roman empire. <laughs> so think about that next time you're eating, uh, you know, next time you're sucking on a chili dog. <sighs> All right. There's no way King Henry the sixth of Germany ever ate like refried beans. Not that he probably was ever eating refried beans. If Taco Bell existed in 1184, King Henry the sixth, no longer going to said Taco Bell. All right. So last one. This is a good one. Now we're going back, back forward, back to the future. Um, going through a little uh, rock and roll music history. That is amazing that more people don't know this, but it is a very like kind of unknown story. But it's very fascinating either way. So, all right, let's see. Got to pull up. All right. So, in the early 60s, there was a 15 year old from the U.S. named James Johnson. James Johnson ha had enrolled into the uh, Naval Reserves. Didn't really have a whole lot of options in life. Young African American fella um, says, fucking, I'll, I'll enroll into the Naval Reserves. Maybe give me some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of pathway in life that I'm not going to get being, you know, an African-American in the early and, you know, in the mid 60s U.S. But he is not expecting to go into like any kind of like fighting situation. He's joining the reserves. He thinks like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to actually have to do anything uh, wrong. So <laughs> the neighbor, his group ends up getting called to action and he says, fuck this, I'm out. So James Johnson does what a lot of people did back, back then. James Johnson flees to Canada, specifically Toronto. When he's there, he's kind of like 
Now, obviously, he has committed a massive crime in the U.S. Fleeing is uh, usually not taken too kindly. <laughs> too kindly. So, James Johnson has, you know, made a pretty big mistake here in the U.S. But he goes to Canada and he's like, I guess I'm just going to live the rest of my life in Canada. Um, his first day in Toronto, he's hanging out and this group of guys try to jump him. As they're about to jump him and just beat his ass, a fella comes in and it like basically becomes a mediator and says like, hey, 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 like leave the guy alone, leave the guy alone. He's with me. They've never met before, but he's just trying to save this like young kid's life. The guy who came in to stop the beating of James Johnson was a fella by the name of Levon Helm. Levon Helm, the drummer and singer of the band, uh, formerly Bob Dylan's backup band. They became known as the band legendary, legendary rock and roll group. Um, Levon Helm kind of hangs out with James Johnson and finds out James Johnson's a musician. It's like, Oh, that's awesome. I also am a musician. We should jam. So James Johnson and Levon Helm decide to kind of work on a project together. They create a band called the Mina birds. The Mina birds end up becoming like decently well-known in the Toronto, Canada area. So in like in the Toronto area, Mina birds, pretty successful. They end up getting a record deal with Columbia records. So doing very well, actually. Um, in 1966, their original guitarist leaves. So got to find somebody new. The person that replaces him is a young fellow, an unknown guy at the time named Neil Young. So Neil Young ends up joining the band and becoming the guitarist of the minor birds. Then they start getting a little bit more successful. This is, again, in 1966. So in 1966, after Neil Young joins the band, they end up signing a record deal with Motown. So Neil Young actually was on Motown back in the day, which a lot of people sure probably don't know. But Motown is in Detroit, back in the U.S. At this time, James Johnson is kind of forgetting the fact that... uh, He's kind of a wanted man back in the U.S. So when he comes back, he ends up getting arrested. When he gets arrested, the band is done. Minor birds are over. So Neil Young ends up leaving, going to California, creates Buffalo Springfield. Um, obviously, legendary 60s, late 60s uh, band. And Neil Young becomes one of the biggest, most influential rock musicians of all time. So you might be thinking, well, what happened to James Johnson? Well, James Johnson ends up, you know, getting released, going back on his own, still wants to make music. James Johnson has, at this time, started kind of like switching up his name and creating a stage name. You would know him better by his stage name, Rick James. So, yeah, bet you didn't know that. (laughs) All right. Well, that'll end it. Hopefully you enjoyed this segment. I always enjoy going through these. Very fascinating to me. Um, I mean, with that being said, I guess that'll wrap this one up. Uh, you know, leave some comments, follow, follow the Instagram, follow the YouTube, subscribe, all that good stuff. Go buy a goddamn t-shirt for the love of God. All right. Until next time. Goodbye.